walked into the room and there was the mother and father, a few neighbors, friends of theirs, standing around this seven-year-old boy who died. And following my intuition, which I really trust, I went over to the side of the bed and I leaned over and I kissed this little boy on the forehead. And when I did that, the whole room broke into tears. Because while they had cared for him with tremendous love and great care, actually, nobody had touched him since he died. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Frank Ostaseski is the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, which is the first Buddhist hospice in America. He's helped thousands of people die. Frank's book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, looks not only at what makes a good death, but also how end of life can inform the rest of life. As he puts it, none of us get out of here alive. Frank, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Very nice to be with you. Happy to be with you and your listeners. Now, you're a calm man now, but you had a a pretty tumultuous childhood. Uh, Your mother died when you were 16, your father just a few years later. How did that affect you? Well, I don't know that my circumstance was so unusual, but certainly it had it gave me an early introduction to death. Um, death and I met quite early in my life. Um, it forced me into being an adult a little too quickly, honestly. Um, but also it helped me to really recognize how absolutely precarious our life is. And of course, when we come into contact with that precariousness, we also come to appreciate its preciousness. Then we don't want to waste a moment. And so I think early on, I got that message um, to step into life, you know, to, to jump in with both feet and live it as fully as we possibly can. What brought you to Buddhism? Well, as you said, I, I lived a rather chaotic life um, as a young man, a teenager. And I think what brought me to Buddhism is what brings a lot of people to mindfulness practice or meditation practice, and that is their own discomfort, their own pain, their own suffering. Uh, You know, we're looking for ways to um, alleviate that, to reduce our suffering. And um, I tried lots of things, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know. But uh, ultimately, Buddhist practice... uh, You were a rock and roll manager. You were uh, diagnosed into one of those, very fully. I was, yes. But, you know, what what Buddhist practice, or specifically meditation practice, gave me, and it need not be Buddhist practice, uh, was a way to look, a way to inquire and to examine my life, and to really see what the actual causes of my suffering were, other than the conditions in which I grew up in, you know. So um, that was the initial motivation. Um, and then I think also I just, it made sense to me. It didn't ask me to believe anything, you know. I didn't have to take on a belief system. I could really test it out, test out the teachings in my own experience. That was very helpful. Yeah. For someone who doesn't know very much about Buddhism, how do you, how do you normally describe it? Well... I mean, I think there's debate around that. Some people think of it as one of the five great religions. Others think of it as a philosophy. Um, I think of it as a practice, something that I live into in order to understand. Um, uh, The Buddha, of course, was a historical figure um, whose really primary work was about relieving suffering. How do we, what are the causes of suffering and how do we relieve that suffering? That's really the primary centerpiece of his teaching, if you will. Um, but I'm not so interested in being Buddhist or I have no missionary zeal when it comes to Buddhism. Um, what I'm interested in is freedom. How do we actually have some degree of freedom in this life so that we're not victim to our circumstances? We're not um, limited by our the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what we're capable of. And I think uh, what Buddhism did is help me to expand beyond those limiting uh, beliefs and stories. Yeah. Your uh, five invitations uh, grow out of your uh, the principle that uh, death is a, a secret teacher hiding in plain sight. Um, yeah. They're uh, they're they're very they're very straightforward. Uh, 
One, don't wait. Two, welcome everything. Push away nothing. Three, bring your whole self to the experience. Four, find a place of rest in the middle of things. And five, cultivate the don't know mind. I wonder if we might go through each in, in turn, starting with the principle don't wait. Absolutely. But I, I want to just add that uh, these principles or these invitations, if you will, were really taught to me by people who were dying. In other words, this is what I observed yeah. in them. Um, you know, when we get close to the end of our life, what really matters becomes very evident, right? And so uh, these uh, principles really are what they taught me. And they, they uh, not just about the dying process, but again, how we can live a, how we can apply them to our lives and live a whole, rich, wholesome life. So first, yes. don't wait. Yeah, don't wait. I mean, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. I can't tell you how many times, Andrew, I've been with a family and they've said to me in one fashion or another, when is mom going to die? And waiting for that moment of death, we miss all the moments in between. So don't wait, you know. Please, let's not wait to tell someone we love um, until we're on our deathbed, you know. Let's, if there's someone we love, let's tell them we love them now, Yeah. Um, if there's um, something in our life that really engages us, let's step as close to it as we possibly can. This isn't about, um, oh, the kind of urgency in life, a kind of immediacy, like we, I mean, excuse me, a kind of feeling like we have to have it all together and get it all really quickly. I don't mean that at all. I mean, uh, to don't wait really is an invitation to step into this moment. You know, to be fully present in the immediacy of our everyday life, uh, not yeah. waiting for some other time to start living our life. And you talk uh, in your book about uh, the number of people who've come to you and said, uh, my relative is dying. When should I go and see them? Yeah, I know. I, there's one story in the book that I share, which is uh, a fellow who was actually on my board of directors, and his the doctor said his wife, his mother rather, had six weeks to live, and she was in Toronto, he was in San Francisco, and uh, he came to me and said, "When should I go?" And you know, this is a quandary for a lot of us. We live at a distance from our relatives or the people that we care for, and I said I asked him a little bit about his mother's condition and then about her. And his relationship with her. And, and as I began to speak with him about his mother, I noticed the color in his cheeks started to change. And I saw that his lower lip and chin began to tremble a little bit. And I said to him, I think you should go tonight. And he said, I can't, I have business tomorrow. And I said, no, go tonight. So he took the red-eye flight, the overnight flight from San Francisco to Toronto. And he arrived at 10 in the morning, was sitting at his mother's bedside when she died. Don't wait, you know. It's not just about dramatic moments like that one, you know. It's about, you know, uh, really engaging in what matters to us. You know, the two big questions that come up, Andrew, at the end of life are not about regrets, honestly, or they aren't about what happens after I die. Those questions emerge, but the two really big questions that emerge are, am I loved and did I love well? And if those are the two questions that are most essential at the end of our lives, well, why wait until then to discover our, our responses to them, you know? Um, so this don't wait is really an encouragement to um, live in the immediacy, in the very freshness of this moment. Yeah. Speaking of the freshness of moments, I, uh, I loved your description of the Midwestern hospital that had a, uh, a particular yeah. way of acknowledging yeah. when a new baby was born. Tell us about that. Oh, isn't that a beautiful story? I, I was walking through, I was giving grand rounds at, in the hospital to a group of physicians. And as we were walking to the big auditorium where this was happening, Brahms Lullaby began to play over the PA system. And I noticed that as Brahms lullaby played, everyone stopped. They paused, literally. They didn't keep walking. And I asked the head of nursing who was escorting me, what's that? And she said, oh, she said, whenever a baby's born in the hospital, we pray Brahms lullaby. And I said, you mean in the, in the maternity ward? She said, no, no, everywhere in the hospital. It goes into the operating theaters and it goes into all the administrative offices. It even goes into the morgue. It's our way of acknowledging new life is coming into this into the world, you know, 
And it was really interesting to see how this very small little gesture caused people to stop and pause, and smiles to grow on their face. And I, it just seemed to shift the way they interacted with one another as well, you know. Um, very beautiful image, I thought, and, and a beautiful practice in this hospital. What a way to humanize a big glass and steel building, you know, where we tend to be more interested in protocols and procedures than um, human relationships sometimes. Yeah. And often more worried about death and thinking about new life. And, and I thought it was an interesting parallel with uh, one of the ways in which you used to uh, uh, look after yourself uh, in uh, as you dealt with the, uh, the the stress of of spending time around people who are at the end of their lives and and your experience of uh, helping a friend in uh, in, in uh, holding new babies uh, who have yeah. been born to yeah. well you tell the story well you know I, um, I of course I ran a hospice for many years we took care of as you said in the introduction thousands of people. San Francisco was kind of ground zero for the AIDS epidemic um, in the 80s. And so sometimes I would be with 30 or 40 people in a week that would die. And it takes its toll on us, you know. Those of us, particularly those who are working in healthcare or who are caring for family and friends, uh, our normal coping strategies won't be sufficient. Just to come home and have a glass of wine and watch the television won't be sufficient to integrate or to metabolize the suffering that we've been exposed to. So I had to learn new ways to really metabolize um, this kind of experience. And I did a few things. The first thing I did was come to my meditation cushion because I sat on that cushion and it stabilized me. It, it, it gave me a kind of emotional regulation. And that was very, very useful. Um, another thing I did was I went to the maternity ward at the local hospital where my friends, the nurses, would invite me in. And there there were babies who were born to addicted mothers, mothers addicted to crack cocaine or to alcohol. And what I would do is I would sit in a rocking chair, Andrew, and I would rock these little babies for maybe an hour or so before I'd go home to my own four children. Mm. And there was something so tender um, in this experience of these little babies that would be shaking, you know, frail. And through this contact, this holding environment that what I would create, in effect, for them in the, in the rocking chair, they would settle and they would, they would begin to relax, regulate. In a sense, what I did was lend them my nervous system. That's really what was happening. Mm. And, and what, what I saw in that was that it was really important for me to be able to soothe certain kinds of pain. And I couldn't always do that at the end of life, frankly. You know, I couldn't always, you know, relieve the suffering that someone was going through. But with these little babies, I could, at least temporarily. And um, that gave me a kind of resilience to go back into the world um, where I couldn't necessarily uh, manage the suffering. And then there was a third thing I did, actually, which is that I went to a body worker uh, about once a week. And this body worker didn't do anything fancy with me, no California woo-woo stuff, you know. I would lay on his massage table and he'd say, where today, Frank? And I'd, I'd point to my shoulder and I'd say, just there, just there. It's a little tight. And he put his hands on my shoulder. And the next thing you know, Andrew, I'd be weeping. I'd just be crying on the massage mm. table. And there was something about the physical touch. When, when we have contact with the body, it gives us more access to our emotional life. And also the relational quality of his care and concern for me that really softened me and allowed this grief that was I was carrying around to be felt and expressed. I get up off the table. We wouldn't talk about it. We didn't process it very much. And I, he'd say, see you next week. And I said, yeah, see you next week. And I'd come back the next week. You know, I'd go out the door and go back around my work. So it was something about having to care for myself that was really mm. essential. Uh, I did that through meditation and regulation, but also this body work. And then also being able to really soothe others, uh, sometimes when I couldn't in the course of my work. They were very helpful in integrating, metabolizing, and cultivating a kind of resilience, which is essential in this work. Yeah. Your second invitation is to welcome everything, push away nothing. Tell us about that. Well, you have bumper stickers in, in Australia. We certainly do. Oh, you do? Okay. Because it's such a culture of them here in the States, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it would, uh, would be a great one. Yeah, people. Yeah, I think it would be. 
So to welcome everything and push away nothing, I mean, it sounds good, but how do you do that? I mean, is it even intelligent to do that? Um, I, in this uh, invitation, I'm not suggesting that we have to like or approve of everything that comes. It just means we have to be willing to meet it. If it's here on our doorstep, are we willing to meet it? Yeah. Um, we can't really find our way through difficulties in our life if we're not able or willing to be open to them, to accept their presence. Um, the great um, America, African-American writer James Baldwin once wrote, he said, there are many things in this life that we must face that we cannot change, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to, to welcome everything is just that, it's to invite it in and see what it has to teach us. A friend of mine um, was going to dinner at a mutual friend's house, a very eminent psychiatrist. But this psychiatrist had, in the last year or two, developed Alzheimer's disease. And so he had difficulty recognizing people. They rang the doorbell. He opened the door to his home. And he stood there for a moment, a bit bewildered. And he said, I'm very sorry. I don't really remember people's faces anymore. And I can't recall your names. But I knew, I do know that this is my home. And my home has always been a place where people were welcome. So if you're on my doorstep, I know that my job is to invite you in. Please come in. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you draw the analogy with uh, uh, someone who, uh, who told you a tale about how to install telephone poles and uh, what, to, what to do if a telegraph pole is, uh, is in strife. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's most difficult for us to welcome, of course, is our discomfort, our pain, our suffering. That's the most difficult. We always want to get rid of it, right? And so all of our strategies, or so many of our strategies, are understandably oriented toward um, getting rid of an experience. But when we're so pushing on an experience, oftentimes we can't really learn anything from it. So I feel that it's useful to turn toward suffering, to lean into it even, to get to know it really well. And uh, I was speaking about this at a program I was leading. Uh, up in the northwestern part of the United States, a rural part of the United States. And the man said to me, well, that's like telephone poles. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, to be honest. And I said, well, tell me more. And he he said, well, I used to install telephone poles. They're about 40 feet high. And um, when you put them into the ground, they're a bit unstable. And so they can fall. And if they fall on a man, they can break his back or even kill him. So he said, the first day I was on the job, I said to my partner, an old timer, if that pole starts to fall, I'm running that way. And he pointed in the opposite direction. And the old time said, oh, you don't want to do that. He said, if that pole starts to fall, you want to go right up to it. You want to put your hands right on it. He said, it's the only way that you'll know which way it's moving. Yeah. And I think it's a bit like that. He said, it's the only safe place to be, actually. That was a really wonderful way of talking about it. And I think our, our life is like that, too. That we're so busy trying to get away from our suffering, that it, it has us by the throat. You know, if we, we were always a victim to it. What happens if we put our hands gently, mercifully on what hurts? Not only what hurts physically, but what might hurt emotionally or mentally for us. And get to know it really well. You know, sit down with it, have a cup of tea. You know, see what it has to show us. Um, I've, I have seen over the years that the healing that we're often looking for is frequently found in the middle of the suffering. Um, we just go looking for it else. We look for the healing elsewhere, you know. But uh, so I think this is another way we can welcome something in. Again, it doesn't mean we have to like it or approve of it. That's not our job. Our job is to meet it and to see what it has to show us. You have some extraordinary tales in the book, but I think one of the most heartrending is your story of having to go to the home of the parents of a seven-year-old boy, Jamie, who had just died of cancer. Yeah. How did you deal with that situation? Oh, boy. You know, sometimes in this work, I would ask myself, is this even possible? You know, can I do this? And there, there would emerge in me some innate compassion, I want to call it. It's not something that I cultivated or developed or 
or um, perfected. It's just something that we're all born with. And, and if we listen carefully, we can, it can guide us. So yes, I was in my office one day. I think I was doing something administrative, you know, managing a grant report or something for some funding we were um, uh, trying to get. And the phone rang. And there was a gentleman on the other end of the phone. And he said, someone's told me about you. And they told me that when our son dies, you could help keep him at home. And um, that there was a ritual that you could help us with. And I said, oh, yes, of course, I can help you with that. I'd never met this man before. I said, just mm. simply call me at the time that, you know, if, if and when this happens, call me. He said, no, you don't understand. My son has just died. He died 20 minutes ago. And I said, oh, I'll be right there. And I drove to the home of this family. I'd never met them before. And I didn't know what I'd find, honestly, Andrew. But this is turning toward, you know, turning toward suffering. I walked into the room and there was the mother and father, a few neighbors, friends of theirs, standing around this seven-year-old boy who died. And following my intuition, which I really trust, I went over to the side of the bed and I leaned over and I kissed this little boy on the forehead. And when I did that, the whole room broke into tears. Because while they had cared for him with tremendous love and great care, actually, nobody had touched him since he died. You know, there was that fear that was there. Mm. Oh, and then, you know, then the whole room softened then because, you know, crying has a way of shaking loose the calcification around our hearts. And then I explained to this mother and father that there was a ritual that's been done in every culture and for all times of bathing the bodies of people that have died. And that if they liked, we could enter into that ritual together and we could do it, we could adapt it in any way that suited them so that we weren't imposing some idea on them. And they were great gardeners. They loved the garden. And so they, they said, okay, we know exactly what to do. And they took me outside to their garden and they collected uh, lavender and uh, rosemary and sage and sweet herbs and flowers, great roses, beautiful big bowl of uh, rose petals. And then we came back inside, and the mother very carefully went about the house and got her favorite towels and her favorite washcloths. So all things were prepared, you know, for this ritual. And then this mother and father started, and they began to bathe their young boy, seven years old. And they bathed him from the top of his head down his back, you know. That's where they started. And as they would bathe him down his back, you know, sometimes they would stop they would tell me a story about him. And it was a way of them not only sharing about him, but getting current also, that there's been a whole life, a whole seven-year-old's life that had now come to this moment. It was a way of them sort of beginning to recognize what had happened. Or sometimes this mom would come to a little scratch or a nick on his skin, and she would take care of it with so much love, so much tenderness, you know. You know, I remember she got to his toes and she counted his toes. She said she'd done that when he was born. Yeah. And sometimes for the dad, it was too much. It was just really too hard for him. And so he would go and stand up by the window and, and look out to the garden, you know. And so there had to be room for all of these different experiences. There was no force. There was a lot of um, allowing. And then at this one juncture, I remember so vividly now, as you're asking me to remember this, this mother looking at me with these kind of beseeching eyes. And without words, actually, just with her eyes, she, she was asking me, can I survive this? Can any mother, can any parent survive this? You know, it was, a, it was such an honest question, really, that really didn't need words, actually. And my job, Andrew, was to hand her another washcloth, to orient her back to her son. This is, again, what we were saying a moment ago, because that's where the healing is always found. The healing, in her case, would be found in the enormous love that she had for her son and in the middle of the grief. And so she would just weep, you know, sometimes. And we'd have to stop. And then the father would step in and it would go like this. It took hours to wash this boy's body. There was no rush. 
that's the thing with rituals, you know, when you start a ritual, you have to trust it, actually, and it has its own time and its own um, magic, if you will. Mm. Mm. And so, as they washed him, shoot, they now they're washing up the front of his body, and this mother got to his face. And it was so tender, Andrew, between them. You know, by the time she got to his face, she'd burned through a, a kind of grief. I don't mean the grief was over, not by any means. It was that it wasn't separating her so much from her son at that moment. You know, it was so tender between them, maybe like the moment in which he was born, you know. Any mother who's listening to this understands that moment of being with their newborn child and feeling like they're one being, you know, child, mother and child together. And it was like that in this moment too, you know. And then we, we dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas, you know. And we invited his brothers and sisters into the room and I asked them what he liked to do the most and they said he liked to make model airplanes. And so we got his model airplanes and we made a mobile mobile out of them rather. And we hung them over his bed so that the brothers and sisters could somehow participate in this process as well. And it was an exquisite you know, time that I had no idea I'd be stepping into that morning when I got out of bed, you know. But that night when I went home, uh, I held my son very closely, Andrew. My son was seven years old at the time, yeah. And so I held him really close. One of the things that doing this work showed me time and again was, you know, that we do have in us the innate compassion to meet what seems impossible. And that, um, we can create what the English pediatrician Winnicott called the holding environment. And what I mean by that is that, well, here's an example. When little children are learning to walk, toddlers learning to walk, what happens is they take a few steps and they fall down. And then the mother or the father or some kind adult picks them up, holds them for a moment, and then sets them down again. And what we found time and again is that that little toddler will start to walk again. And often she will go a little bit further, partly because she has the confidence of the love and the caring and this kind of, again, this holding environment um, around that child. I think our work at the end of life, but maybe throughout life, is to help create such holding environments for each other and even for ourselves, you know. There's a lot made of mindfulness practice and meditation practice these days, but I think of it primarily as a kind of holding environment. You know, we sit down in the stillness of, we allow our minds and bodies and hearts to relax, to become still, and it becomes a kind of holding environment in which whatever needs to occur, whatever needs to arise and show itself can. You know? And that's what we did this, this day with this young boy and his family. And... Um, you know, I, I think there was a great healing in it. There was certainly for me, but there was also for this mother and father, you know. Um, I left them, we said our goodbyes, I never saw them again, yeah. But I, I, I know that this experience that was shared between us um, fundamentally shifted the way, not only the way they grieve their child, but also perhaps the way in which they moved through their, their ongoing grief into the fullness of their lives. Yeah. Your third in, your, thank you. Your third invitation is to bring your whole self to the experience. What does that mean? Oh, well, you know, we all like to look good, right? We like to be smart or capable or, you know, um, at least appear like we have it more together than we often do. Um, and so we have a self-image that we put out to the world. And oftentimes that self-image is a story that we've generated or constructed in some way. And we try and live into it in a way. But here's the thing about images, Andrew. Good image, bad image, it's still an image. It's not reality. So to bring our whole self forward means not just to bring our strength and our intelligence and our, our beauty forward, but to bring all of it. And when I'm working with someone who's dying, 
I'm also, as I sit with them, I'm also experiencing my own grief, my own fear, you know. And I think it's valuable for me to do that because it, it, it can create a meeting place with the other person. You know, oftentimes um, in, in clinical settings, hospitals, uh, healthcare settings, we teach clinicians to be experts. And that's important. I want the people who are taking care of me to have great skill sets. But I also believe that we want a human face on our medical care. So to bring our whole self forward means to bring forward not just our strength and expertise, but also our helplessness and our fear and our confusion. Because these allow us to build an empathetic bridge to the other person's experience so that they don't feel so isolated and alone in it. Like, for example, a very dear friend of mine was dying of AIDS many years ago during the AIDS epidemic. And he was a wonderful guy. But uh, so three or four of us were taking care of him. And the, my, it was my day to take care of him. And I went to his home in the morning. And overnight, he had developed this very strange neurological phenomenon in which he couldn't speak an intelligent word. He couldn't stand anymore. And he couldn't hold a fork. All that happened overnight for him. And I was sitting at the kitchen table with him, you know, which was always a mess in John's house. And I couldn't find my friend. I so wanted to, I just saw him the night before, you know, but I couldn't find him now. He was, he was in this state of confusion and neurological deficits of all sorts. John had, in addition to AIDS, he had anal tumors and constant diarrhea. And taking care of him was a lot of work. It's, we forget about this. It's a lot of work to take care of people who are, who are sick and dying. And so we would make these trips into his bathroom and we'd sit on the toilet and then we'd move to the bath and back to the toilet dozens of times. And the evenings rolled into the wee hours of the morning. And honestly, Andrew, I just wanted to go to bed. I was so tired. I was exhausted and I was just hoping that somehow he would go to sleep and we'd wake up in the morning and somehow this nightmare would be over. And so I was, I had just moved him back to the toilet and I'm washing my hands in the sink and I looked in the vanity mirror and there he was sitting on the toilet and he was whispering something to me and I, I really couldn't quite understand first what he was saying. And he hadn't spoken all day. And then I began to understand that what he was whispering was, you're trying too hard. You're trying too hard. Oh, and I was, Andrew. I was trying much too hard, trying to be somebody special. You know, me, Mr. Hospice, you know, all of my years of experience, my expertise. And I stopped in that moment, Andrew, and I sat down on the bathroom floor next to the toilet, and I just cried. And, you know, that moment was the most intimate, the most tender of our whole friendship. Because, you see, up until that point, I was busy trying to be the helper. And there was a certain distance between us. And in this moment, we were both helpless together. Now, we didn't stay helpless together. That wouldn't be very helpful, very useful. The situation showed us what to do next, but I couldn't know that until I was willing to enter into the territory that so frightened me, frankly. I was afraid if I went in that territory, I would get lost. But there we were, both helpless together. And the situation showed us what to do next, and we could move through it. Yeah. So to bring your whole self to the experience isn't to use the patient as our therapist. That's not our job. But it is to build an empathetic bridge, to have some sense of understanding it doesn't have to be the exact same experience, but it, it does require our willingness to be vulnerable. And I think, in a way, this is the most exquisite of human qualities, our capacity to be vulnerable, to allow the beauty and the horror of the world to impress itself on our souls, you know, on our consciousness. And then um, that enables us, I think, uh, to, uh, again, be more responsive less reactive, more human with one another. 
And I think of it in the leadership context too, Frank, uh, as oh, yeah. a distinction between good and great leaders. Uh, good leaders have a, a mask and, and, and are in some way acting the, uh, the confidence. Great leaders are willing to show a little of the vulnerability, to show sides of themselves that are, that are unconventional and, and to, to be, as you say, their whole selves. Yes, yes. Wonderful. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank you for bringing that in. I mean, I, you know, I, we should share with your listeners that about a month or so ago, I had a severe stroke. And so I'm still recovering from that process as I'm doing this, trying to do this podcast with you. And I have certain deficits, um, processing deficits, uh, sorting deficits. I've lost half of my vision as a result of the stroke. But last week I was doing a program for doctors and nurses and I was quite vulnerable in it. I allowed my fear to show. I allowed my um, grief to show. And they thought of it as being quite brave. I didn't think of it that way. I just thought it was the easiest way for us to connect. Mm. You know, when we often think of vulnerability as our ability to be hurt to be harmed in some way. And so mostly what we experience in vulnerability is the defensiveness, the, the, the walls that we put up, the, uh, we try to be objective, for example, in such situations. Physicians are taught this a lot, to, to build an armoring around their heart. The problem with that, of course, is that it doesn't let the tenderness in, it doesn't let the mercy in, it doesn't let the healing in, oftentimes. So what I think of, when I think of vulnerability, I think it's actually openness. It's a kind of porousness, we could say, to allow, again, allow um, the wholeness of what, we, of what the world gives us to touch us in a way. And that gives us a lived experience, which is in, in, you know, so powerful in our, in our interactions with one another. That's what I think the great leaders that you speak of have. They have a lived experience. They're not going on just on intuition, and they're not just going on what someone else taught them or what they'd read. They're, they're coming off of, they're coming into the experience with a kind of lived confidence, a deep, basic trust. Yeah. And that only can come about by making ourselves vulnerable to the world. Yeah. Your fourth invitation is to find a place of rest in the middle of things. Hmm. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, actually, because, you know, we always think we're going to rest later when we go on vacation or holiday or, you know, when our list gets checked off, right, or email box is empty. I don't know about you, Andrew, but my email box has never been empty. I'm sure yours hasn't either. And, and my list, zero is just a mirage. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and our to-do list, you know, they're never gotten, they've never really been fully checked off, you know. So if I wait for those conditions, I'll never rest. So I have to find a way of resting right in the middle of what I'm doing. And I think we do that to a large extent by bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is that we're doing. That might be reading a book or going to a movie or sitting with friends or, or doing it in a more formal way in mindfulness practice or in exercise or time in nature is a wonderful way to think about that. So, Here's an example. Um, there was a woman in our hospice, uh, Adele. She was a very ferocious woman, um, kind of tough cookie, we would say, in the old days. And um, she didn't like any nonsense. She didn't want to talk about anything New Age or spiritual or Buddhist. She didn't like any of that stuff. But um, she was very honest. And the night she was dying, they called me. And I went to her room, as I did with most patients. And um, there was a wonderful nursing aide who was sitting with her. And so I sat on the couch in the corner. That's my way, not to jump in too quickly. I'd rather sit back and see what's actually needed. So sitting there on the, on, on the couch, I noticed a few things. Um, the nursing aide said to Adele, um, Adele, you don't have to be frightened. We're right here with you. A beautiful, well-meaning, good intention statement. But Adele, who was this tough cookie, she turned to her and she said, Honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be frightened. Just like that. So I thought I should stay on the, I should stay on the couch, you know. And uh, 
but then I watched, you know, some more. And, uh, and then this very well-meaning uh, nurse's aide said to her, Adele, you look a little cold. Would you like a shawl or a blanket around your shoulders? And Adele shot back, of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. <laughs> and so I, I stay on the couch. But, you know, I noticed a few things there as I was watching. And maybe you can even hear them in the story. The first was Adele was struggling. She was having difficulty breathing despite all the correct interventions of oxygen and morphine, etc. There's a labor to die, just like there's a labor to getting born. And she was in the middle of it. And um, so one of the ways suffering was manifesting was in the breath. The second thing that I noticed was that she was very honest. She didn't want any nonsense. She didn't want to be persuaded out of anything, you know. She just wanted real, authentic relationship. So noticing this, I pulled up my chair close to the bed, and I'd known her for some time, and I said to her, Adele, would you like to suffer a little less? And you know, she doesn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation, but she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. So she said, yes. And I said, okay. I said, I noticed something there. I said, I noticed that at the very end of your exhale, there was this little pause, this little gap. I wonder if you could put your attention there for a moment. I'll do it with you. Now, remember, she doesn't care. These things, meditation is not her cup of tea. Mm. But again, she trusts me. She wants to be, she wants to struggle less, so she tries it. And she would breathe in, I would breathe in, and she would breathe out, I would breathe out. So for a little while, we were just breathing together, harmonizing, if you will, our breath. And then I noticed something. I noticed that her attention got, came to rest in this little gap, in this pause that's there at the end of the exhale. And as it did, the fear that had so characterized her face seemed to drain away. And I saw that she was relaxing. Mm. And she said to me, Frank, I think I'm going to lay down and, and on the pillow now. And I said, great idea, you know. And so she did. She laid back on her pillow. And a little bit later, she died very peacefully. Now, I think that uh, Adele found a place of rest in the middle of things. You see, she was still dying. There was still shortness of breath. None of those conditions had changed. And yet in the midst of those sometimes very chaotic conditions, she found a place of rest. Often in our day-to-day -day lives, we're busy trying to maneuver or manage the conditions, manipulate the conditions in some way, imagining that will bring us our happiness or that will bring us freedom from struggle. But suppose we just learned to rest, relax, soften, if you will, right in the middle of even the most challenging conditions, which is what Adele found. And she'd never done it before. It wasn't like she was a 40-year meditator. She was, this was the first time she'd ever done it. Anyone ever asked her to watch her breath. And she found it there at the end of the exhale, before the next inhale, which is always it's there for all of us. What do we find there, you know? Do we find in that gap some trust that the next breath will emerge? Or are we frightened there? Do we want to maneuver the breath or, or manipulate it in some way? So to find a place of rest in the middle of things is just that, just that simple. Don't be, don't be thrust ahead into the future so far. Stay with the immediacy of this moment. See what's actually happening. And it happens for us all the time. You know, it happens to us when we're reading a book or watching a film. We get absorbed. We get engaged with whatever it is that um, is right in front of us. And we often find that to be not only restful, but... Um, rejuvenating for us. Yeah? Mm, mm. So, you know, my friend of mine says, um, when we're so busy trying to manage the conditions, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, we're missing the big picture. Yeah? So here we were, someone was imminently dying, and yet there could be a way of finding some way of rest, even though the conditions were... Um, quite, quite difficult for her, yeah. And that, that, that gap there at the breath is one place to find it, but it's always there, you know, it's the, it's the moment between stimulus and response, yeah. And if we just can sense it sometimes, 
we can be responsive rather than just being swept away by our reactivity. Yeah. Your fifth invitation is perhaps your most zen, uh, cultivate the don't know mind. Yeah, zen is full of those kinds of statements, these sort of illogical statements that are meant to push us in a way out of our, you know, um, well, our common way of thinking, our habitual way of thinking. To cultivate don't know mind doesn't mean to cultivate ignorance. That's not uh, useful. To cultivate a don't know mind is to cultivate a mind that's not so full of knowing that there's no room for anything else to enter. In other words, a mind that's free, that's full of wonder, for example, or curiosity. Um, one teacher called it the beginner's mind. You know? mm. um, it's the mind that really wants to know as opposed to being so filled with its opinions and views. Yeah. And, um, and when, we, when we can engage from that place, um, oh, so many more possibilities emerge for us. You know, it's uh, said oftentimes in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities. But in the beginner's mind, there are endless possibilities. Yeah. So to cultivate don't know mind means, you know, like I, I'm with people who are dying regularly. And I, I don't know how they should die. It's not my job. My job is to find out from them how they need to die. What do they need in the situation? Um, how can it be a best support to them? If I walk in the door full of my knowing, I won't be able to understand that. Like, for example, there was a man who was, came to the Zen hospice to die, and he was the head of the California Atheist Association. We have such associations in California. And, um, and uh, so, you know, he didn't have any belief in afterlife or any of these kinds of things. But I asked him a question, which I asked many people as they die. I said, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And it's not like there's a right answer to that or anyone knows exactly the truth. But I find that the way in which we think about what happens after we die shapes the way in which we die and perhaps even the way in which we live our lives. Mm. So I said, what do you think is going to happen after you die? He said, nothing. And I said, well, what's that like, nothing? Is it like a dial tone? You know? And he said, no, it's not like a dial tone. I said, well, what's it smell like? He said, just no, you don't have a nose. You don't smell things. I said, well, is there sound? No, you don't have ears. And I said, oh, well, what's it like, this nothing? And he said, well, it's like your molecule. And your molecules mix with all the other molecules in the universe. I said, oh, that kind of nothing. <laughs> and um, I thought he's going to be just fine, you know. Some people have very terrifying stories about what happens after they die. You know, they've come from, them, from their families or cultures or religious traditions even. And, um, you know, it's really important to work with those and help people you know, discover for themselves around this. So when I don't know, I am more curious. I'm more interested. You know, an open, a really open and dynamic mind is is one that has some degree of spaciousness in it, but it's kind of infused with interest, you know, with with creativity, with curiosity. Yeah, you know? uh, that's how I want to live my life, uh, with that sort of engagement. And I can't do it if I'm fixated on all of my knowing. Yeah. So, because I have a don't know mind, doesn't mean I leave my expertise at home. I have a toolkit, you know, that I've developed over the years, a big yellow toolbox of tools, yeah? But I don't lead with my tools, Andrew, when I walk into a patient's room. Mm. If I set down that toolbox between myself and another person, one of us is sure to trip over it, yeah? <laughs> So I don't leave with my tools, I leave with my humanity. And then when I need a tool, no problem, it's there. I can reach in my back pocket or the toolbox, wherever it is, and I can pull out that tool and, and skillfully apply it. You know, Believe me, if I'm having surgery, I want the surgeon to have good tools. I want him to know his expertise mm, mm. really well. But when I'm dying, I not only want a good health practitioner, healthcare practitioner, somebody who knows their stuff, who can help manage my pain and address my symptoms. That's really important. I want that. But I also need somebody who's comfortable in the territory of meaning with me, who can help me ascertain or explore 
what's been the purpose of this life? What's the value of this life? What's even the purpose and value of this dying process I'm in the midst of? So I need somebody comfortable in the territory of meaning. But even that's not enough. You know, there comes a juncture in this process where you've seen it with your grandmother or whoever, maybe you've been around someone's death. There's, there's a turning that happens in the dying process. And it's a turning away from this world and the meaning-making activities of this world and more toward the quality of mystery, to the unknown, mm, to mm. The, the, what we can't, we haven't discovered yet, you know? And um, so I also need someone, when I'm dying, who can be comfortable in this territory. And this is the land of unanswerable questions. Yeah? This is the land where the best thing we can do sometimes is just simply stay in the room and bear witness as someone is making this exploration for themselves. Um, so, yes, I want mastery in my position or healthcare providers, but I also want something, I want them to be comfortable in meaning, in the territory of meaning. And ideally, I have some familiarity with the territory of mystery as well, because all of those, those three are needed in, in accompanying someone through the dying process, maybe through our lives, huh? Yeah. Just a few final questions. What, what advice would you give to your teenage self? My teenage self? Oh, probably I would have said something like, don't be in such a hurry. But teenagers tend not to listen to that. I would say, um, you're going to go on a trip somewhere. And you're going to come to this place that's incredibly beautiful. Stop, really enjoy it. But don't think it's the last beautiful place on earth. Be curious. Keep, keep, uh, keep discovering, yeah? Uh, my own children, I felt like when they had a passion, the passion of curiosity, they would be fine, you know? Um, that would lead them to love. That would lead them to compassion. That would lead them to... Um, engagement full engagement with life so i would want to encourage that teenager to have a sense of discovery and interest and curiosity yeah. what's something you used to believe but no longer do oh the suffering is a punishment you know it's just part of the human experience um I don't think of it that way anymore. You know, I think uh, in my religious upbringing and some of my culture and family, we saw it that way. And I think that uh, it causes an enormous, an enormous amount of guilt and regret in people's lives. It's completely unnecessary. So suffering has value. And I don't mean that in some martyrdom-like way, but one of its values is that it allows us to feel compassion for other people. You know, compassion emerges as an appropriate response to the presence of suffering. And not much contact with suffering, not much compassion. Yeah. So suffering is the gateway, if you will, to compassion. It's, the, it's what invites compassion to come in. You know, in my tradition, um, in the Buddhist tradition, there is a great... Um, we could call them, we could call it a sage or a saint. They're called bodhisattvas. They're great beings of wisdom, and, and uh, one of those great beings is called Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara is considered the embodiment of compassion. Yeah? And in many depictions, Avalokiteshvara has 1,000 arms, and in each hand, there is, depending on the depiction, an ear to hear the cries of the world or an eye to see the suffering of the world, yeah? and a thousand arms to respond. I was in Spain last year, and I was talking about this to a group of people. And someone in the audience said, well, that's wonderful, but I only have two arms. What should I do? <laughs> and I said, I think you're mistaken. And he said, no. And he looked, and he said, no, I just have these two arms. And then I asked everyone in the audience in Madrid to raise both their arms. And there were about 500 or more people in this audience. And so a thousand arms went up in the room. And I said, do you see? I said, those are the thousand arms. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't, you know, we can, we can appreciate our deep 
interdependence, our deep interrelationship with one another. And, um, and then we won't feel so isolated, so separate and alone. And so I, you know, I think that when we touch suffering with some willingness, it can introduce us to this to this understanding of compassion and yeah, this way of appreciating compassion. That compassion is not just a big idea in the sky, you know, some religious notion. Compassion has to be expressed through each of us, through our arms and legs, through our tongues and eyes. This is how it takes shape in the world. And so, you know, we need that teaching on compassion. We need that ultimate feeling of compassion, the boundlessness of it. But that boundlessness needs us too. It needs us to express compassion in everyday ways. And um, I think that uh, that's what dying folks help me to understand. You know, suffering is not punishment. Um, we all suffer. This is the human condition. And when we begin to appreciate that, I think we open our hearts to one another a little bit more easily, a little bit more gracefully. Yeah. Frank, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, I'm not very physically healthy at the moment. I just had a stroke, but I'm recovering slowly, slowly. Um, I, I think that um, I do a number of things. I, I, I take care of each center, the center of the head, the center of the heart, the center of, of the belly or the body. So I challenge my brain. Um, I, you know, inquire, I um, investigate uh, regularly, um, I study, um, and I challenge my heart, you know, to turn toward what is uncomfortable and um, to meet what is impossible with some degree of love and compassion. And that challenged my body. I, I live on a houseboat, you know, in uh, California. And so in the mornings, I can jump off my back dock and swim in the cold water, which is very invigorating. And, mm. um, and uh, also uh, helps to build strength and flexibility, but also um, connects me with nature. So I spend a lot of time in nature. And the last thing I would say about that is, um, you know, there are some things we can do in the fast lane, Andrew. We can do strategic planning. We can, you know, come up with brilliant ideas. But one of the things um, that we can't do is integrate in the fast lane. That we have to do in the slow lane, yeah? So we need some time, some way of slowing down and coming to some stillness. And for some of us, that's sitting on a meditation cushion and doing mindfulness practice, but that's not everyone's cup of tea. For others, it's walking in the woods or being with our grandchildren. But I think uh, bringing some stillness into our life so that we can actually listen through the ruckus, through the uh, screaming and shouting that's so prevalent in the world today, that seems really important. And then we can make skillful decisions about how to lead our lives. Yeah. And finally, Frank, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, wow. Well, I can think of a number of different people, but, you know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and I've had some encounters with him. And, you know, in that tradition, he's considered to be an embodiment of compassion. So that means that what I witnessed in him is ability, his ability to meet everyone equally, regardless of their station in the world. I've been with him in hotels where he was meeting famous celebrities and politicians and uh, leaders, but he took the time to make sure he shook the hands of the cleaning crew, you know, and uh, the people who cleaned the toilets. And so uh, there was a way in which he really didn't um, place one person above another because of their station. And I think that was an incredibly ethical stance to take in the world. And imagine if we did that more in the world. And uh, imagine if we saw ourselves in each other and saw them in us. Yeah. Hmm. 
Frankos Tuseski, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. And for people who want to know more about uh, your th- thoughts, uh, they can read your book, The Five Invitations, uh, or log on to the website, fiveinvitations.com, uh, which has not only information about the book, but also uh, a series of uh, uh, pieces of, of advice, resources that people can use on living more fully and being a compassionate companion. Thank you again, Frank. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for doing this. It's a great gift you're giving the world. Good work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Nikki Johnson, Liz Forbat, and Michelle Knox. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.